Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Welcome back. I'll get us started on the orders front. Just one new case this week. The court will hear the Biden administration's appeal of the Eighth Circuit's injunction against his student loan cancellation plan. It's noteworthy that although Biden brought this as an emergency appeal, the court is not dealing with it on its emergency docket. Instead, it treated the administration's application as a petition for certiorari, granted it, and set the case for oral argument in February. In the meantime, it preserved the injunction on Biden's plan. You know, GC, this seems like something we're seeing the court do more often these days is granting certiorari before appeal, deciding the case on an expedited uh, basis. Uh, And I agree, it will be very interesting to see what happens with this case. Now, in fact, GC, haven't you and our colleague Jack Fitzhenry written something about this case? Uh, that's right. Uh, Jack and I have written a paper, a very long law review article, uh, analyzing the many <laughs> Are there legal any issues. Other kind? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> analyzing the many legal issues in this case. Uh, I'll put a link to that in the description. I think, uh, for what it's worth, the Biden administration is going to lose this case. Whether uh, it's a straightforward statutory analysis or the major questions doctrine from last term or even the pretext concerns from the census case from a couple terms ago, things don't look good for Biden's loan cancellation plan. I'm shocked. Shocked to hear that. (laughs) Uh, GC, uh, tell us about oral arguments this week. Sure. There were five this week. Uh, We'll discuss the two high-profile ones. First up, 303 Creative versus Elenis. In this case, a website designer, Lori Smith, is challenging a Colorado law that requires her to create websites for same-sex marriages, which she opposes as a religious matter. Now, as you can imagine, much of the reporting on this case is not particularly accurate or informative. If you listened to or read the oral arguments and then read much of the press about it, you'd come away with the impression that many journalists don't understand the case. So. I don't <laughs> So uh, let me break this down fairly. Lori Smith, the owner and sole employee of 303 Creative, is a Christian and does not believe in same-sex marriage. She says that her designer websites are a form of creative expression, and in fact, the uh, state agrees with her on this. And so when Colorado forces her to make a website for a same-sex marriage, it is compelling her to speak. Now, uh, note that her claim is a free speech claim only. It is not a religious liberty claim. So this is not uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop 2.0, even though we're dealing with the same law. Now, to set up the parameters of this dispute, the core legal dispute here, it's important to note that Lori Smith does not refuse service to same-sex people. In fact, she has same-sex clients, but she will not make a website for anyone of any sexuality that celebrates a same-sex marriage. Now, again, the parties agree that this is speech and that the law would force Smith to speak in a way she disagrees with. But what they dispute is whether Smith is making this choice on the basis of the message. This is uh, the message that the website celebrates same-sex marriage, which would be uh, on the basis of speech or the status of her would-be clients, which is conduct and therefore not protected speech. 
So now you probably see the problem with so much of the reporting on this case. The case has been framed as one about whether LGBT discrimination will be permissible, but the line here is actually one between speech and conduct. Whatever the rule is, it will apply to all sorts of speech on all sorts of topics where people have strong opinions. And this is why the several hours of oral argument were filled with scores and scores of hypothetical questions. Now, let me pause here to explain why the justices ask hypothetical questions. They do it because what they're trying to do is cut through the political issue in any given case to arrive at rules that will govern all sorts of issues. In short, what they're trying to do is find general neutral principles. Well, in theory, GC, I think some justices, I won't name names, uh, but use them to score political points <laughs> are sound bites that can yeah. be played later. Yeah, that can be true. Actually, there was an interesting article in the Vala Conspiracy this morning by Will Bode, law professor at Chicago, uh, discussing some of the recent trends in oral arguments and how, uh, for one reason or another, uh, they are starting to resemble, in some ways, uh, congressional hearings where uh, some of the justices may use the advocates more like props to make their points rather than engaging in a dialogue. But let me return to these oral arguments. Um, we could spend all day, of course, recounting the hypotheticals. But in the interest of time, I'll highlight just one, which I think was probably the most probing of question of the day, the one that best isolated the principle from the politics. And it came from Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who asked the Deputy Solicitor General, if you had a gay couple with a website design business, could the government compel them to design a website for a Catholic organization that opposes same-sex marriage. Now, what she's getting at, of course, is whether uh, that would be status discrimination against the Catholics or message discrimination against the view that same-sex marriage is wrong. Barrett, again, is searching for a general and neutral principle, and she knows that whatever the rule is is going to decide both those cases the same way. Now, the government, somewhat surprisingly, answered that although it could force Lori Smith to make a same-sex wedding website, it could not force a gay couple to make a website for the hypothetical Catholic organization. It said that Smith's objection is status and the gay couple's would be to message. Of course, that isn't a neutral principle. The solicitor's answer elevates one message over the other. The conservative justices, I'm quite confident, are not going to go for that. Uh, for what it's worth, actually, none of the liberal justices came to the solicitor's defense. Justice Sotomayor and to some extent Justice Kagan seem to simply doubt that making custom websites is creative expression at all. Or if it is, they seem to think that it is the expression of the couple, not the website maker. Uh, but deciding the case on that basis will be tough because the parties have stipulated that it is indeed the website maker's speech. Mm. You know, GC, there was one other fascinating exchange at oral argument between Justice Neil Gorsuch and the Colorado Solicitor General, and Justice Gorsuch was actually referencing the previous uh, cake baker case, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case with Jack Phillips, and he said uh, that in Jack Phillips' case, the state of Colorado had actually forced Jack Phillips to go what Justice Gorsuch termed uh, to re-education <laughs> courses. <laughs> Uh, for not a adhering to apparently the appropriate views um, is a very uh, uh, feisty exchange and a very interesting one, uh, I thought as well. Next up is Moore versus Harper. This is a case involving the so-called independent state legislature theory, though, as I'll explain, that characterization is somewhat of a misnomer. Basically, the justices are being asked to decide whether, and if so, when, 
a state court can step in and override based on its own interpretation of state constitutional provisions certain rules and regulations the state legislature adopted with respect to federal elections. Now, this matters because the Elections Clause of the U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, specifically says that, quote, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. And that's the key language, that by the legislature thereof phrase. This case comes to the court from North Carolina, where the state Supreme Court there set aside the congressional map drawn by that state's legislature as being a partisan gerrymander, claiming that it violated four different, somewhat amorphous provisions of the state constitution. The North Carolina courts ultimately rejected the legislature's redrawn map and implemented their own. State legislators in North Carolina asked the U.S. Supreme Court to step in, arguing that because the U.S. Constitution delegates federal lawmaking power in this area specifically to state legislatures and not generally to the states, state courts cannot apply state constitutional provisions to override the state legislature's decisions. Chief Justice William Rehnquist first floated this idea in his concurrence in Bush v. Gore. Still, here's why calling this idea the, quote, independent state legislature theory is somewhat misleading. Everyone agrees that state legislatures do not act with completely unchecked authority in this area because the framers of the Constitution explicitly included a check on their authority in the Elections Clause itself. The second half of the Elections Clause provides that with respect to the rules adopted by the state legislatures, quote, Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. And Congress has, albeit rarely, exercised this authority in the past. Still, those agreeing with the North Carolina Supreme Court's position call the state legislature's position extreme and dangerous. They argue that at the time of the U.S. Constitution's adoption, it was understood that laws passed by a state's legislature must comply with that state's constitution and that state courts can enforce those state constitutional provisions. David Rifkin, Andrew Grossman, and Richard Rail, in an excellent Heritage Legal Memorandum, point out why the hyperbole involved in this case is unwarranted and why the historical analysis does not support what the North Carolina Supreme Court did in this case. They say that the question presented in Moore v. Harper arises only now because the recent phenomena of state courts improvising federal election regulation under the guise of interpreting vague state constitutional provisions is a new one. Whatever else may be said of the competing positions in this case, there is little basis for contending that the state courts adhere to, quote, a long-settled and established practice of invalidating and replacing a congressional plan based on freewheeling theories of free and fair elections. This was another marathon oral argument clocking in at almost three hours. The justices pressed all of the all-star advocates on their respective positions. David Thompson of Cooper & Kirk represented the North Carolina legislators. Neil Katyal argued for the private respondents in this case. And Donald Verrilli argued for the state respondents. 
The current SG, Elizabeth Prelogger, also was involved in the case and argued for the Biden administration, uh, which supported the respondents. It is good that the Supreme Court is deciding this very important issue now, though, instead of waiting to resolve it when the outcome of an election hangs in the balance. Now, if you are interested in uh, this thorny legal issue at the heart of this case, the, at the Fed, Federalist Society's National Lawyers Convention, there was a very interesting and very funny debate on this point by Akil Reed Amar of Yale and John Yu of Berkeley, which is probably online at the FedSox website, uh, and it's well worth a watch. Next up, I interview Judge Paul Kelly right after this. For over 35 years, the Heritage Foundation Job Bank has been helping conservatives at all professional levels find employment in key positions in Washington, D.C. and across the country. We can help connect you with positions in the administration, on Capitol Hill, in public policy organizations, and in the private sector. To learn more about the Heritage Foundation Job Bank, go to heritage.org slash job bank. We are joined today by Senior Judge Paul J. Kelly, Jr. of the Tenth Circuit. Judge, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. So, Judge, did you always know that you wanted to be a lawyer? You know, I never really gave it a whole lot of thought. I did follow my father around, who was a lawyer uh, and subsequently a judge. I followed him around when he was an attorney. Uh, I really wanted to be a tugboat captain. I worked on the commercial fishing boats on, on the East Coast, and uh, I thought that would be really a fun way to make a living. But I I decided in when I first got into college that I really wanted to go into law. While you were uh, – so you went to Fordham Law School, and while you were there, you started working at one of New York's big white-shoe firms. What was that like? Oh, it was it was really great. I was there for a couple of years. Uh as a, and I was a you know a law clerk, and uh, I just learned so much from them, and and from you know how to how to research and how to you know file stuff, and it was just a great experience. Uh, and there were there were th- three of us that that were there for a, a period of time, and I think I was probably one of the longest law clerks there, uh, and I left shortly after graduation. Why did you leave? Well, I didn't want, I, to be real honest, I, I wanted to get out from under my father's shadow. Uh, at that time, he was the administrative judge of the New York Supreme Court out in uh, Nassau County. Uh, and I was assigned to work on a uranium case that was pending in New Mexico and met the attorneys from that firm uh, and asked them as sort of a lighthearted question, you need the young lawyers out in New Mexico. Uh, and the furthest west I'd ever been was South Bend, Indiana. <laughs> uh, and they said, yeah, if you come out, we'll pay your way and we'd love to interview you. And I, I went out. My wife and I had just had our first child. Uh, and I went out and called her up and said, you're going to love it out here. The people are friendly and the weather's beautiful and uh, the country's very different from, from Long Island. Uh, and we we came out, and I've never looked back since. What is it about New Mexico besides the weather that drew you there? Well, just the the uh, opportunity uh, to to just be out on my own and to 
to really uh, uh, build a career for myself. Uh, as I say, I wanted to get out from under my dad's shadow. And the the place, I mean, we had an apartment in New York that you could have put in a closet in our <laughs> place in, in Roswell. The work out here was just exciting, and it was just a, a, a great change. What was it like going from a firm, you know, a, a big white shoe firm in New York to your small firm where you had to build your own practice from scratch? Well, you know, I didn't have to build my own practice. That was the great thing about it. The Hinkle firm uh, goes back to the 18, late 1800s, uh, and, and they have been they were the third largest firm in New Mexico with, with nine lawyers back in those days. That was 1967. <laughs> Uh, when I left the firm in, in 1992, uh, uh, we had 100 lawyers in six cities in two states. Wow. And I, I was able to, to uh, plug into the oil and gas practice. Uh, I did a lot of public utility litigation, uh, including a number of uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission cases. Uh, and on top of that, uh, there was no public defender uh, department in New Mexico back at that time. Uh, and so we had a lot of pro bono uh, criminal work that had, got handed down from the senior to the junior. And I was the junior and did all the criminal pro bono work uh, in the first several years uh, in practice. Uh, tell me about that pro bono work. Well, the, the local district judge would... would pick up the phone and call you and say, uh, Paul, uh, got a burglary case here and uh, it's going to go to trial in about 10 days and I'd like you to be the the defendant's attorney. <laughs> good good <laughs> heavens. You, yeah, and you would just take a yellow pad and stick a piece of carbon paper behind it and go out and start talking to the witnesses uh, and then go to trial. You, you know, prepare a set of... Uh, uh, jury instructions, uh, and I say there was no public defender department, and I was fortunate to uh, have been one of the three lawyers chosen by the governor to put together a statewide public defender department mm. uh, in, in the late in the late eighties, uh, and and we set up the public defender department, and uh, it's going to this this day, which covers the entire state. Now, you developed for yourself a reputation as a very successful trial lawyer, and rumor has it that you developed something of a catchphrase for when people asked you if you had won. <laughs> what was that catchphrase? I, <laughs> I don't remember when I first said it, but <laughs> uh, when I came back into the office after a trial, uh, somebody would always say, how'd you do? And I'd say, does a cat have a tail? Because uh, I, I I had won the case, uh, and and I just love trying cases, and it was just a great a, just a great experience. What was your most memorable trial or your proudest win? <laughs> you know, we probably the the greatest series of trials. Uh, we did the White Sands Missile Range uh, condemnation cases by the government. Uh, they first condemned the lease, and then they condemned the fee after the lease condemnation was completed. Uh, and we represented 56 ranches 
in that in that case, and we prevailed on all of them. Uh, and I guess that was probably my most uh, money worthwhile case. But mm-hmm. my my most memorable trial was a pro bono criminal case, a drug case brought against an undercover agent uh, by the local district attorney, uh, and he had been indicted as a result of the people he had turned uh, or had caught, and the DA tried him, and I tried the case right before the primary election uh, and won the case, and the DA lost his primary election. Wow. And I was very proud of that one. (laughs) (laughs) While you were in private practice, you ran for a seat and won a seat in the New Mexico legislature. How did you manage a campaign and then serving as a state representative along with your trial practice? Well, it was it was hard, but my my other motto always was that's why God made nights. <laughs> and I uh, campaigned. I was I was uh, in a district that was two to one in the opposite party uh, for as far as registrations were hmm. concerned. And I began campaigning in in four o'clock in the afternoon on June twenty seventh. And the reason I remember that is because it was my anniversary, and my wife was not terribly <laughs> pleased with that with that setup. Uh, and to make a long story short, we we prevailed uh, handily, and then I ran without opposition the next hmm. the next go round. And finally, my firm told me that I had helped the people all they could stand being helped, and <laughs> they they said to me, please don't run again. And I didn't. And then they sent then they sent me to Santa Fe uh, after I concluded my legislative work uh, to open an office for the firm. Mm. Uh, and I did that. And that's how I got up to Santa Fe. Uh, and then I was appointed to the Court of Appeals uh, from from Santa Fe. Did your father's service as a judge uh, affect your decision to become one yourself? You know, I, if, I'm sure it probably did subconsciously. Uh, I don't really have any recollection saying I want to be just like Dad. Uh, I know that shortly after I became a judge and, and uh, you know did my first opinion, I sent it down to him to look at, hmm. and he called me back up and he said, "You know, I don't agree with this." <laughs> and I said, "Well, I've got two people that already agreed, and all I need is two <laughs> out of the three. <laughs> Uh, but I, I think I was motivated by the fact that he was in the in the courts, mm. and I initially wanted to be a trial judge, mm. uh, but it didn't work out. Uh, and instead of being a trial judge, I became a court of appeals judge. Although I gather that you sat by designation as a trial judge as well, and you maintain uh, an active. I document. still do. Mm. Right, I still do. Why, um, how did you manage the dual caseload? Well, it's it just one thing at a time. And, and uh, like I start a trial on this coming up on the 14th of March, mm-hmm. and I'm going to try it for a week. And then starting the 21st of, of March, I, gotta, I have to go to Denver uh, to sit on our appellate uh, you know, case. Uh, and I'll be back and pick up that case if and when we we uh, if we haven't finished it by the end of the week. Wow! Uh, and I just take them one at a time. I've got four great law clerks, 
uh, and I, I assign everything in seriatim. So one clerk doesn't get stuck with all the, the you know, one type of case. Mm-hmm. And we just balance things out, and, and uh, everybody works hard. And when we get down near the, near the day of a trial, we just, you know, don't worry about how late you have to stay. Uh, but we just we just balance it out. Well, you have maintained incredible speed and quality. Your opinions consistently come out w- within two months, uh, or you circulate a draft within two months of oral argument. You have earned a spot among the top three most cited judges in the country, along with Seventh Circuit judges Richard Posner and Frank Easterbrook, according to a 2015 study. So, what is the secret to your success? I guess you have to say it's it's just uh, one luck that we get cases that when they're done and we and we circulate them they become presidential. Uh, and secondly, we have a a ten day rule in my chambers uh, where if we get a case in in September, it's got to be out of our chambers by the next term of court. Uh, and when we get a case in from another judge to review, uh, we have to have it done within 10 days so that nothing festers. And I can't really, I, I was very surprised when I when I learned that I had been uh, among the top three most cited judges, and I only found it out by uh, walking into a, uh, a meeting at, of our circuit, and one of the other judges said, how does it feel to be one of the top three cited judges. I said, oh, I don't know. He said, well, you are. And the study just came out to show it. Uh, and I, I was totally dumbfounded by it. You mentioned your four law clerks. Um, have you formed any traditions with them? Well, in the sense that, that uh, uh, I have one permanent law clerk who's been with me for 30 years. Uh, and we have uh, weekly lunches together uh, out at some uh, different restaurant in Santa Fe every week. Uh, and we take a hike. Uh, we've traditionally done that at the, when the Aspens change. And then we have a, a, a reunion every five, we have had a reunion uh, every five years. Uh, and I keep in touch with my law clerks. And when I, when I sit, for instance, uh, in, in California with the Ninth Circuit, uh, or when we're in Denver uh, or New York, uh, I put the word out that I'm coming into town, and we always we all get together for a dinner in in a restaurant. So we all we keep in touch pretty pretty well, and and uh, I think they enjoy it. I certainly enjoy it. Uh, my clerks are the only people that I can really sit down and talk to uh, under the you know rules that that, that guide federal judges. Mm. And it's, it's, I don't know if those are traditions, but that's, that's how we do it. Now, over your many years on the bench, you've issued opinions in some really high-profile cases. Can you talk about some of your most memorable, your favorite cases to have worked on? Sure. Uh, well, you know, the, the Oklahoma City bombing case always stands out. Uh, and what was interesting about that case was that, and we've never done it before, and I've never been in, you know, I've done it since, is, the panel sat down before the argument and sent the attorneys a list of the areas that we were concerned about. And 
hoped that they would they would uh, direct their briefing to those areas, or at least their arguments. Uh, and it was interesting that none of them did. Not <laughs> one of the arguments we wanted to hear uh, were 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 responded to. Uh, the gay marriage case was, uh, I dissented in that case, but uh, obviously I was, I was on the short end of that. Uh, the Florida versus Georgia water case that the Supreme Court appointed mm-hmm. me as the special master was a fascinating case. And that, that was probably one of the highlights uh, of my career. Uh, and it, it went back my my work went back to the Supreme Court, and they affirmed it last year, nine to nothing. So I was pleased with that. One case that I would love to try again was U.S. versus Singleton. Uh, and that case involved a lawyer in Kansas who argued but to the court and said, there's something wrong when a, when a prosecutor can offer a defendant I mean, a witness, uh, some kind of a break if he'll come in and testify against the defendant. And I was looking in the statutes, and, and there's a bribery statute, and it said you can't give anything of value for a witness's testimony. And I wrote that case uh, with that in mind, and the other two judges on the panel joined it. And the hue and cry <laughs> went from one coast to the other. <laughs> that we were trying to say all prosecutors were criminals. And uh, in any event, without any motion or anything, my, my own circuit pulled that case back in uh, and in an order and judgment, you know, just affirmed that the conviction of the defendant. Mm, and to this day, I think I was right. Uh, and as an old judge from Roswell, that was one of the mentors of the bar told us, they may reverse me, but they don't change my mind. <laughs> now, speaking of um, being a mentor to the bar, you are and have been for a long time uh, the leader of the local chapter of the American Inns of Court. Am I right about that? Yes, that's correct. What do you do in that capacity? Well, we, we, put, we put it together, and uh, it's a, the purpose is to encourage civility as well as uh, give give lawyers the continuing education opportunities. Uh, and at least in New Mexico, there had not been one. Uh, and I sat down with two or three of the more senior lawyers. This is back in like 1993. Uh, and we formed it, and then we invited various uh, experienced, not-so-experienced, brand-new lawyers to join it. And every month from, from September through May, uh, a different group will present a program for the rest of the of the group, uh, and it's been very successful. And I think it has really helped because if you break bread, if you will, with the fellow who's going to try to you know beat you into the ground, uh, <laughs> that it makes for a much much more camaraderie uh, uh, environment, uh, and and. Uh, it, that it, it's it's just been really fun. I not, they also uh, I was nominated by the inner court and received the professionalism award for the Tenth Circuit uh, several years ago, uh, which is presented in the U.S. Supreme Court chambers, which was an exciting event. 
uh, and if it's uh, it goes only because the lawyers are interested and and want to do it. Now, Judge, if I can change uh, subjects for a moment, I have heard that you keep a large engraved metal fire axe in your chambers. Can you tell me the story behind that? Well, uh, I was a fireman and an emergency medical technician uh, for the last, uh, well, I've been out of it now about four, five, four years uh, in Santa Fe County. Uh, and and I served in various capacities, uh, including as assistant chief and chief of the fire department in the Hondo uh, Fire District. And when I stepped down uh, and I, as chief, I had to because the county commission has to approve who the chief is of each each uh, fire district. And that would make it political, and a federal judge cannot be involved in politics. Mm. So I stepped down, and the department presented me with a, a gold – it's not real gold. I'm sure it's a you know <laughs> painted gold uh, – fire act, and I have it hanging on my wall. Uh, in my chambers, and people mm. come in and say, why is that there? And I, I tell them my story. I also have my uh, helmet that I wore for 32 years sitting on my shelf uh, here, uh, and it was a big part of my life, principally because, again, as a as a federal judge, you're, you're people you can talk to and just, you know, just be around uh, become very limited. Mm. Uh, and the firemen, they're from all different walks of life. None of them are lawyers. Uh, and and uh, it just was a, 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 just a really fun, fun situation. And we ran about 550 calls every year. And if I was in town and not in court, when my pager went off, I would go. Uh, and finally, my wife said I was getting too old and I was going to hurt somebody, so I retired. So besides the Inns of Court being a volunteer fireman, uh, you and your wife, Ruth, remain very active in the Santa Fe community. What other things are you involved in? Well, just really, it's Rotary uh, and, and our, our local church. Uh, and and she is involved, she's been involved in... Uh, she worked for the governor of New Mexico for eight years, uh, director of boards and commissions, and uh, knew everybody in Santa Fe. But uh, I was unable to accompany her to any of those uh, functions. And and so we've sort of both slowed down. We just recently moved uh, into, into town from out in the country where we did live. Uh, and so we just have the, the end of court, rotary, uh, and I'm still on the board of directors for the fire department, mm. uh, but it doesn't take much much time. It sounds to me like you've taken very seriously the judicial ethics rules. Have you found them constraining, worth it? Uh, what do you think about no. them? Well, I have not found them constraining at all, but you have to know them. And I served on the uh, uh, National Committee uh, – in the, of the federal judiciary and the ethics committee, uh, and and it all makes sense. You know, you can't go to a fundraiser, you can't raise money. In fact, that might be one of the benefits of the job. <laughs> you can't raise, you can't give money, you can't raise money uh, for any political activity. 
and it makes it makes good sense. And I was very disappointed uh, to learn that that a number of uh, uh, colleagues across the country had just failed to see what they had, and now you can see every day in the Wall Street Journal is mm-hmm. is another motion being made to vacate somebody's somebody's uh, judgment because they turned out their wife or their uncle or somebody owned stock of the one of the parties. Uh, and I think that if everybody reads those uh, canons and and follows them, uh, they should not be very constraining. Now, you cannot hold individual stock and sit on a case, even if you have just one share. So we don't have any common stocks. It all goes into a mutual fund, which is, is protected from that from that problem because we don't have any any choice as to what they invest in. I see. Uh, but I don't find them constraining to me at all. Now, shifting gears, I have a question that comes to me from one of your former clerks. And I'm Uh-oh. told, <laughs> I have to ask you about the time that you tried to visit a military academy in your boat. What is the story there? Well, my wife and I lived on a boat and up until two years ago in the summertime. Uh, we kept it out on Long Island, and it was a, a 48-foot trawler. Uh, and we were going to take a trip up the Hudson River. Uh, and one of my colleagues uh, was, a, was acquainted with the protocol officer of West Point. So we headed up. We went all the way in from the end of Long Island into New York, up the Hudson River, uh, and and got up to where West Point was. and got on the radio and said, uh, this is uh, Mastiempo, which is the name of the boat, and we're coming into your dock. And they came back and said, well, what makes you think you can come into our dock? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, uh, I'm a United States circuit judge. And they said, oh, you can come into our dock. <laughs> and uh, uh, it, had, it had been cleared, but they didn't know that with the protocol officer. And we we pulled in there and, and uh, just went all over the campus. And after we had a good good visit, we got in the boat and headed further up the Hudson River. Uh, and we, we just enjoyed that boat. And I could set up my chambers uh, on the back deck. So I had huh. my, my uh, uh, iPhone and my computer and uh, everything is now on, you know, electronics. Uh, and we, I could make in contact with my chambers, and it was just a great way to spend about half the summer. <laughs> How many other federal judges have ever set up their chambers on uh, on a boat? Probably not many. <laughs> well, there was one other, and he is passed away now. From the, he was on the Second Circuit, uh, and he and I are we wanted to go uh, in one of our boats, either his or mine up to the first circuit, which is right on the river. And we wanted to dock at the dock. They have a dock right there. And in our robes, we wanted to get off and go up and sit <laughs> on, a, on a case there. But unfortunately, uh, he passed away before oh, we were sorry. able to do that. Well, Judge, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. And I have one final question for you. Uh, and it is this. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be, and what would you talk about? Well, that's a hard, hard question. Uh, I think I would I would enjoy uh, a conversation with Judge Scalia, uh, who was also from Long Island, 
and and we would discuss uh, fishing and hunting and the opera, uh, and more importantly, I would at least try to discuss the need for common sense decisions uh, that were not tied to super technical uh, terms. Uh, and and I I don't know that it would get me anywhere, but that's <laughs> what I'd like to that's what I'd like to do. Well, Judge, thank you again so much for joining us. Well, it was been my pleasure. All right, GC, all of this election-related talk got me thinking that this would be a good week for election law-related trivia. How are you feeling about that? Oh, so pumped, Zach. (laughs) I knew you would be. That's why I picked it. (laughs) Bring it. All right. First up, I mentioned earlier in the show that Chief Justice William Rehnquist put forward a version of what today is being, again, somewhat inappropriately called the independent state legislature theory in his Bush versus Gore concurrence. How many of the current justices played some role in that decision while working as lawyers? Oh, I know this. So Chief Justice John Roberts did. Justice Kavanaugh did. Yep. And uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett did also, but for only a very short period of time, and she doesn't remember what she did on the case. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. (laughs) Uh, You know, Chief Justice Roberts probably had the most involvement out of all of the current justices. And in fact, he flew to Florida after the election and helped Bush's legal team as they prepared their challenge. But during that same time period, he was also preparing to argue a separate case before the U.S. Supreme Court. And his son, who he had planned to adopt, was born during that time, too. So certainly a busy, busy period for him. (laughs) All right. I have another Bush versus Gore question for you, GC. Okay. Who is the only remaining member of the court to have heard Bush versus Gore as a sitting justice? Well, must have been, I mean, must be Clarence Thomas. I didn't realize. Has everyone else been replaced since then? Yep, that's right. I guess so. Wow. It is Clarence Thomas and uh, Stephen Breyer was the other justice. Wow, that's uh, longer ago than than you sort of feel like it is. I know. Time flies. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's keep this Bush versus Gore theme going uh, okay. for a minute. Uh, and let's, uh, uh, you know, GC, are you ready for some football, I guess? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'll tell you where I'm going <laughs> you with have, this. Uh, you have hit upon my weakness, sports ball. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you where I'm going. So the advocates who represented Bush and Gore uh, in Bush versus Gore have represented many other high-profile individuals, including high-profile sports stars. So here's my question. Which Bush versus Gore advocate represented NFL quarterback Tom Brady in his infamous Deflategate case? Okay, well, I know that I have to confess. I don't know what Deflategate is, but I know that the lawyers were either Ted Olson or David Bowie's. So uh, one of those two. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a solid guess, GC. And I have a trivia question for you, Zach. All right. What all was right. Well, Deflategate? Well, I'm glad you asked, GC, and I'm happy to. <laughs> Me let too. You know. uh, and your guess was spot on. Of course, uh, David Bowie's represented Al Gore, and Ted Olson represented George Bush. Okay. And in this case, Ted. Olson represented Tom Brady. Uh, gotcha. Now, Deflategate, this was uh, an episode where uh, the Patriots and Tom Brady were accused of using slightly deflated footballs uh, below NFL regulations to give them an advantage uh, in football games. Apparently, a slightly deflated football makes it easier to pass and catch and, and that sort of thing. Uh, at least that's my 40,000-foot <laughs> uh, <laughs> level understanding. Well, you know a lot more than me. 
you may remember that uh, as a result of this uh, scandal, Tom Brady was suspended for four games by the NFL, but he actually challenged his suspension in the district court, uh, in a federal district court, and the district court actually agreed with him and vacated his suspension uh, because it found that the NFL had imposed it after their arbitration uh, in a fundamentally unfair way. And there was a lack of appropriate notice as well. I'm sure Patriot fans rejoiced uh, by this ruling, but uh, their victory was short-lived because the Second Circuit Court of Appeals reversed and effectively reinstated the suspension. Uh, And despite his stellar legal representation by Ted Olson, uh, Tom Brady did not take his case to our nation's highest court. How interesting. It is. Well, I've got another interesting. NFL-themed question for you about David Boyce, who, of course, represented Al Gore. Uh, He was hired by which NFL owner uh, when this owner was in a dispute with NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell after the suspension of his team's star running back? Oh, I would not know that. (laughs) That's all right. It was Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones. Uh, Apparently, Jerry Jones and Roger Goodell did not see eye to eye on many issues. And uh, David Boyce was brought in to represent Jerry Jones. Interesting. I would just like to know, you started this off by saying we were doing election trivia, and now we are deep down the football rabbit hole. Seven degrees of separation, GC. Uh, All right. I tell you what. We'll move away from football, and I'll end trivia on a substantive note. Okay. In what case did the Supreme Court hold that partisan gerrymandering presents a political question beyond the reach of federal courts? Ah, back into my comfort zone. We are in Rucho versus Common Cause. Yeah, that's right. It was a five to four decision written by Chief Justice John Roberts and joined by Justices Thomas Alito, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Now, in that case, the plaintiffs were challenging the maps of Maryland and North Carolina. And the court's decision in this Rucho versus Common Cause case is in part why the dispute about the allocation of power between state legislatures and state courts has made its way back to the court in Moore versus Harper where the state Supreme Court, of course, struck down the legislature's maps as a partisan gerrymander in violation of the state constitution. Very interesting. Overall, well done today at Trivia, GC. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Zach. My sports ball deficiencies notwithstanding. Uh, you did pretty well. Uh, I feel like you're setting me up to, to come in as a ringer here on one of these <laughs> sports-themed trivias. Well, that's all we have to today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.